so last week, those of you who were here, we were looking at those middle chapters of Isaiah where God says I'm God and nobody else is. Um, you may remember the text. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. It's effectively what God was communicating to Moses at the burning bush. Moses asked God what his name was, and as you recall, we touched on this last week. God said, I am who I am, which means his name is Yahweh, right? When he says, I am who I am, he's saying, I am Yahweh. This is his name. This is his proper name, his proper Hebrew name. Also, we talked a little bit last week about the message God means for you to hear when he uses that name, Yahweh. Now, in your Bibles, your English Bibles, you'll see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's Yahweh. That, that always means Yahweh. Now, there's a new Bible translation coming out. It's called the Legacy, the Legacy Standard Bible, I think is the title. Have you heard of this? They're going to translate every time that, for instance, in the NASB when it says Lord, capital L-O-R-D, they're going to insert the name Yahweh. And then when you see capital L, little O, little R, little D, they'll use the word Adonai. I think this is brilliant. I think this is the way it always should have been done. But this is what they are doing, and I'm, I'm anxious to get a copy. I think they may be available soon. But God's name is a message. We talked about this last week. His name is a message. And 6,800 times in the Bible, he's giving us this message. I'm God. Nobody else is God. I'm God. Nobody else is God. This is what he's saying. He's saying, um, he's saying a host of other things, but principally he's saying, nobody is like me. I'm utterly unique in every respect. This is what he's saying. When you don't just read over the word Lord, capital L O R D. Listen, you need to you need to you need to realize God's talking to you. You need to, you need to see God there. You need to hear God there, right? You know, we're we're all guilty, especially if you've been in the church very long. We just read over stuff. It's it becomes music to us. I've heard it a hundred times, and we just read over stuff. Hey, a preposition will change your life sometimes. <laughs> okay? <laughs> Don't read over stuff. What's the message? He is the unrivaled, uncreated. He is the unequaled, unbegun. He just is God. We talked about it last week. He just is. From an eternity past, He just is. He's always been. He always will be. Who was and is and is to come. He just is. And he always will be. We talked about a lot last week. Many people who call themselves Christians do not seriously reckon with the magnitude of what it means for God to be God. I, I said this to you a lot last week. I'm going to continue, continue to say this in this series. We're in a series. We're going to look at God for a long time. Okay? Because if you don't know who God is, you, you cannot even begin to understand the gospel. You have no idea really what the cross is about. Except, well, maybe I'm worth it and God died for me. Wrong. You're not worth it. 
I'm not worth it. If we understand our Bibles, if we understand who God is, and we understand who we are, we understand, as we talked about last week, what God should do with us, how He should simply judge us. God is absolute being, reality, perfection, truth, goodness, and beauty. This is in the name Yahweh. Everything that is not God is contingent upon God. Every breath you draw is contingent upon God. Every brainwave you, brainwave you have is contingent upon God. You don't have another thought lest Yahweh ordain you have another thought. Now, I know we kind of assume that we're somewhat autonomous in the world. Now, we may have a, a worldview of God and all of that, but, but, it, it, but on a practical level, it's almost like we deal in such a way that we feel like I'm... Really, my next brainwave's not contingent upon Yahweh. If you have this mindset, it'll change the way you live. It will change the way that you live and think. I always love what John Piper says about this. Listen, the cosmos is a peanut in God's pocket. Okay? The whole cosmos is a peanut in God's pocket. God means for you to worship when you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. He doesn't mean for you to read over it. He means for you to worship. He's Yahweh. Nobody's like Him. Nobody is like Him. This is what the Lord means for us to do when we encounter His name. He means for us to reckon with the magnitude of what it means for Him to be God. It's what David is saying in Psalm 8, verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's O Yahweh, our Adonai, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's in the translation, but you don't see it clearly in the English. So God means for you and me to reckon with this baseline, foundational, fundamental, ultimately cosmic reality every single day you wake up. Yahweh is God. And what does that mean for you? What does that mean for you today? And how you're going to, as we've been talking about, surf the internet, how you're going to love your spouse, how you're going to love and raise and discipline your children, how you're going to do your job, how you're going to interact with authority. It's all implied in his name, and this was the challenge last week, that you learn to reckon with the magnitude of what it means for God to be God. Every day you wake up. So I'll ask you, did you, last week's sermon, did, did it impact you at all? Did, did you think about uh, Yahweh? Did, did you, uh, you know, reckon with the magnitude of what it meant for, for him to, uh, to be your creator? And you know, unbelievably be your redeemer? Did you deal with it at all this week? Did it provoke you to humility, contrition, and trembling? Did it change the way you think? The way you speak? And the way you act? Okay, this is what I'm guessing, and I'm going to say this to you lovingly. Some of you still aren't taking me serious. <laughs> it's just another sermon, Jim. Jim gets excited. He preaches about God. 
It's just another sermon, man. I, I walk out the door, and I haven't gotten three blocks down the street, and I have no idea what I'm going to do with this sermon, right? I have no idea what I'm supposed to do with the Word of God that was preached to me tonight. I have no idea. And I have no plans to incorporate what I learned into my life. Listen, can I, I'm going to lovingly say this. I just, I, I lovingly say this. Don't come to church if that's your mindset. Just don't come. It's not good for you to come and sit under the Word of God and ignore it. I, I, I lovingly say this. I want you to come. I want, I, want, I want to max this place out. But don't come here and not plan to react and respond and submit to the Word of God. Just don't come. It's not good for you to be indifferent to the preached Word of God. If we've understood our Bibles, we realize it's dangerous. We realize that it's dangerous to play a game with the Lord. <laughs> Listen, if we're, looking at, if we're looking at the biblical, God, I love, always love this. Some of you may misunderstand it. <laughs> always love this. Listen, if you're looking at Isaiah's God, right, you're not going to be praying for a good parking spot. Okay. Is it wrong to pray for a good parking spot? That's not my point. My point is, the point of that comment is, you must worship or you must flee. That's the God of Isaiah and all of the Bible. You must worship or flee. And so I'm challenging some of you. Listen, God means for you and He means for me to worship. And He means for us, listen, I'm, I'm going to preach some lofty stuff in the next few weeks. He means for us to respond in a God-honoring way. In a God-honoring way. We talked about it last week, right? Job. You remember Job. Job had a complaint against God. Some of you have complaints against God. I counsel against it. Right? Job had a complaint. Actually, Job said, he actually challenged God. He said, let the Almighty answer me. And we talked about it last week. The Almighty did answer him with 70 questions that Job could not respond to. And God said to him, who then is he that can stand before me? Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. And I paraphrase that for you. To me, what I'm hearing is, who are you, the creature, to question me, the creator? To whom do I owe an explanation? We talked about this. He doesn't owe you an explanation. God says, you're my intellectual property. I don't answer to you. You know, we have this superficial view of God in the church, in the modern church. Yes, Jesus used the word friend. I get that. He used the word friend. But there's, a, there's also part of this relationship that's fear and trembling, beloved. And if you don't get that, you've not really understood who God says He is in the Bible. There's always tension in the Bible. There, there's always tension between uh, the many truths that we see in Scripture. And you remember Job's response, and this is, this is my response, and I hope it's your response. I'm, I'm, I'm still learning this response in some venues of my life. But Job says, Behold, I am insignificant. Who can I, what can I reply to you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Don't you love it? I lay my hand on my mouth. I love it. God willing, this will be one thing we'll learn as we process some of these chapters in Isaiah. 
So you heard the text read. Isaiah has seen Yahweh. What is his, what is his first response? Yay, I see God. Oh, good, there's God. Oh, yay, I got to see God. Isn't that great? What's his response? He condemns himself. He utters damnation upon himself. He says, woe is me, I am ruined. Now, you have to have, beloved, I know we're a New Testament church, I get all that, but you have to have this concept of the greatness of God. Holy, 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 you, you can't see the face of God and live. This is what God told Moses. And the modern church has this low view of God. This is dangerous. It's blasphemous. And really, it's, it's paralyzing. If you don't have a great God, you're not going to go out there and live the word. You, you just won't do it. If you have some small denominational God, you will not go out there and, and, and be obedient. You won't do it. You'll fold every time. Trust me. You will fold every time. So why this cry of despair? He sees that God is holy and he's not, right? I heard a great theologian said, he said, you know, uh, Isaiah learns two things immediately, right? He sees who God is and he sees who he is. This is something that many church members have never really seen. Now, they've done an ordinance. They prayed a prayer. They've never really seen the greatness of God in, in such a way that they would get on their face. They've never seen the greatness of God in such a way that they realize, I am unworthy to even stand before this God. Right? We've dumbed him down so much in the modern church. Well, we want everyone to feel comfortable. Yes, feel comfortable in one sense, but in another sense, tremble. You need a great Savior. Not just any old Savior. You need a great one. You need Yahweh to come in the flesh. Isaiah's response is the real-life calamitous condition of every human being, if it is not remedied, will result in each one of us meeting God as an enemy. So Isaiah gets a wake-up call. He's a prophet. Okay? And, and he gets a wake-up call. He thought he knew who God was. Wrong! He doesn't know at all when he catches the glimpse of a vision of God. And he didn't know who he was either. I'm sure he had a pretty high opinion of himself, just like most of us do. Wrong! Now he's seen God, he's ruined. You know, some of the other translations are, I am undone, I am... Um, uh, I forgot. Here they are. I am undone, I am lost, I am doomed, I am destroyed. This is what Isaiah said. Some of the other English translations put these words into Isaiah's mouth. This is what it's like for you to stand before the glorified God. This is what it would be like. Exactly like this. This is what you would feel. Apart from a real, genuine, saving relationship with the Son of God. This is exactly what you would feel. And you couldn't get low enough, fast enough. This is the ultimate biblical reality. And I, I have to say, I've been doing this a long time. I've had a lot of people come through here with, from a lot of different denominations. Most Christians are not familiar or comfortable with this ultimate cosmic biblical reality. God's holy and I'm not. 
yeah, they, I, you know, in some vague way, I, I, yeah, I, I think that's, yeah, I've heard that. I, I get that. But I'm still a pretty good guy. I got a quote in here in the sermon from a, a Canadian pastor. He said, he said you know, uh, well, God's not really that holy, and I'm not really that bad, so we're a good match. Okay, if I can dispel any uh, misconception you may have, you are not a good match with holy God. You are not a good match. You would be consumed apart from a mediator. Now listen, this whole, this whole series is driving us to the cross, right? This whole series is driving us to the feet of Jesus. So I want, to, I want you to understand that. That's what the purpose of this series is. So <laughs> Isaiah, he says, I am ruined. He's ruined, not in some theoretical or metaphorical sense. He's exhaustively ruined from the inside out. He deserved hell yesterday. He understands. I deserved, I deserved it yesterday and the day before that and the day before that. That's what I deserved before pure holiness. I deserved it. That's what I deserved. If you have no concept that that's what you deserve, then you are in grave error. That's what you deserve. That's what you deserve. That's what I deserve. Isaiah got it. He saw God high and lifted up. He had a wake-up call. And here's the deal. Isaiah's problem is your problem. Isaiah's problem is my problem. Lest God provide a remedy, I will go to hell forever. This is the biblical message. Say, Jim, I don't like to hear about hell. It makes me uncomfortable. Then don't, don't come back here. Because I'm not going to treat you like children, okay? I love you too much to treat you like children and talk to you like your children. You are not children. You are adults. And listen, if you have some false view of God in your mind tonight, I want it gone. Okay? One of my goals, if you, come, if you walked in here with some superficial view of God, I want it gone. That's the most dangerous problem you have in your life right now. Oh, I got big problems, Jim. That's your biggest problem. And until you get that resolved, everything else pales in comparison. American theologian Michael Horton says, Nobody today seems to think God is dangerous, and that itself is a dangerous oversight. Okay, I, this is where I got my title for my last book, Dangerous God, right? I, I got it from, from this, this sentence. Uh, uh, Tony Rinke is a is a writer at Desiring God, which is John Piper's ministry, and he adds this. It's dangerous because before we yawn at God, we have to neuter Him. And many denominations have sought to neuter God. But before we yawn at Him, we have to domesticate Him and manage Him and bring Him down. And if you read the Bible, you realize you can't bring Yahweh down. Now you can play a mental game, in your head, but you cannot bring this God down. Nobody yawns in the face of Isaiah's God. Nobody yawns. I love what he says there. And if you yawn, <laughs> in a metaphorical sense, before the great God 
of the Bible and the great God of the cross? Um, you haven't met him yet. You simply, it's obvious that you have not met him yet. So in this church, we do not yawn before Yahweh. I'm going to give this to you. Chidi and Vivian heard this. They were at Ready Toss when I preached a couple weeks ago, but I'm going to give it to you guys. You guys have heard this. But you have to think of the eight guys. Was it eight or nine? It's eight guys, I think. The eight guys that saw him. The eight guys that saw God. That God granted uh, uh, at least some glimpse, some, some portion of a glimpse of himself. Moses hid his face and was afraid. Joshua fell on his face. Ezekiel fell on his face. Daniel's color turned to a deathly pallor and he fell on his face. Peter, James, and John at the transfiguration, they fell on their face and were much afraid. Paul fell to the ground at his conversion. And John again in receiving the revelation. Listen, okay, you got to think about this. John walked with God incarnate. He knew Jesus Christ Personally, physically, they had a relationship, a real talking back and forth relationship. They knew each other really, really, really well. They loved each other. But when he saw him transfigured, bam, he was on his face. But what gets me is that he sees him again in the revelation. When God comes to give John the revelation, you remember the text says John fell as a dead man. John knew the living, walking, fleshly, incarnate Christ. He had already seen him once transfigured. So it's almost like he would say, hey, yeah, I've seen you before in your glory. No, he fell as a dead man. Don't read over this stuff. Don't read over this stuff. The seraphim, back to the text, Isaiah 6, 3. They're crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Revelation 4, 8. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and is to come. There is no other attribute in the Bible whereby God is worshipped. We, we don't have any course angelic chorus saying love, 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 mercy, 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 justice, justice, justice. This is, holy is the attribute of attributes, okay? This is what the Bible's telling us. He's holy. And we're going to talk a little bit about what that means. God means for you to reckon with the magnitude of what it means for Him to be God and what it means for Him to be holy. God means for us to reckon with these truths. So what, is the, what does the word holy mean? It, as I told you last week, it's a multifaceted word. It means at least four things. I just looked it up in the dictionary. You can go home and look it up for yourself. Holiness is defined as belonging to a divine power. Okay, we get it. We've looked at the middle chapters of Isaiah. God speaks galaxies into existence. He is almighty. It's not simply a title for God. It's the power He possesses. He is the Almighty God. And I love what Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 4 says. The cosmos, you got to love this, is the hiding of His power. <laughs> okay, and you're afraid? You call yourself a Christian? <laughs> this is the hiding of His power. 
This is one reason that prophets and apostles fall on their face before the presence of one who possesses primal omnipotence. Secondly, what does holy mean? To be holy is to be regarded as worthy of worship or veneration. God is unique in magnificence. Infinite power yields the obvious deduction of incomparable magnificence. He is a creator worthy of absolute worship. Creatures must get as low as possible, as quickly as possible in his presence. Thirdly, to be holy means to be regarded as pristinely moral. God is unique in his purity. Of course, we understand this. this. This is what most people carry around in their head, simply the definition that God is pure. Yes, of course, that's correct. God is pure. He is the antithesis of all moral blemish. He po possesses a faultless character. He can do no other than what is perfectly right all the time. If God does it, it's right. Doesn't matter if you like it. Doesn't matter if I like it. Read the Old Testament. Man, there's some stuff in there that'll startle you. It, it doesn't matter if you like it. If God did it, it's right. And this is what the people of God submit to. If He did it, it's right. I'm not going to whine about how He did that or how He did this. I'm not going to wring my hands over it. If He did it, it is right. Let me give you the, well, the last, the last uh, definition. To be holy is to be, and this is the one we talked a lot about last week, is to be set apart. This is the, the key meaning in the Isaiah text. There's no one like you, there's no one like you, there's no one like you. That's, that's what's being said here, right? He is set apart. He's utterly unique. He is like no one else. He's radically distinct, separate, outside, above, and beyond his creation. And here's the deal. The otherness of God evokes an impulsive terror in the heart of mankind. This is what we're seeing on the pages of Scripture. I'm going to say it to you again. The otherness of God evokes an impulsive terror in the heart of, of mankind. It's, it's always worship or flee. And as one theologian said, let me use his words, uh, when we get some glimpse of God, our creatureliness dawns on us and it shatters the myth that we believe about ourselves, that we are autonomous junior grade deities. He says, God is too great for us. He is too awesome for us. In his presence, we quake and we tremble. And this is what I love. Meeting him will be the greatest trauma of your life. Certainly the world has no concept, and even much of the church, sadly, has no concept. That to meet their Creator will be the greatest trauma of their life apart from a genuine saving relationship with Jesus Christ. There is no greater trauma. And the trauma will be eternal. We're talking about eternal conscious hell, right? The trauma will be eternal. I think, it's, I think it's great that he used that word. I think it's helpful for us. So there's nothing more true in all of creation than the fact that to stand before Yahweh without the blood of Jesus covering us will be our consummate trouble, probably trauma. So God is holy. I counted it. 
in the NASB translation, the most literal English translation from the original languages, the word holy appears 583 times. 40% of those occurrences are in direct reference to God himself. The balance are in reference to people, places, and things set apart by God for his own purposes. One reason I love the book of Isaiah so much is that it never stops giving us perspective about who we are. This is what this whole sermon's about, right? That we would have some perspective between creature and creator. God means, and I'll say it again, God means for you to reckon with the magnitude of what it means for him to be God. Listen, if you didn't do it this week, shame on you, okay? Shame on you. I won't excommunicate you or anything. None of, most of you wouldn't care anyway. We don't have official membership. But listen, God means for us to deal and reckon with the magnitude of what it means for him to be God every day I wake up and in every attitude I have. And when I sin, I realize, I realize, I do understand, I understand what Isaiah is saying. I get it. And I've got to have a Savior, man. I've got to have a great Savior. I've got to have a great Savior. There's perspective and scale here. Some sense of scale, right? God, we talked about it last week. My thoughts are higher than, than your thoughts. As high as the heaven is above the earth. He says, man, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. They are regarded by me as less than nothing and meaningless, he says. You know, you watch the politics. And we're, all, we're all embroiled in the politics. Man, this is nothing. This is nothing compared to what God is doing in bringing in His elect and establishing His kingdom. Listen, I know politics are a big deal. I, I, I used to be a junkie, and I'm, I'm, I'm repenting, okay? I'm repenting, because you can spend a whole lot of energy on, on that garbage. And yeah, I get it. Okay, okay. There's, there, it's, 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 it's important in, in its own context, but you cannot allow it to consume you. Allow the kingdom of God to consume you. So, what is the trauma? Hell is the ultimate trauma. It's lethal. It's lethal for the unholy to encounter the holy. It is lethal. It is toxic according to Scripture, right? And it's at God's discretion to execute justice immediately. It may come to us immediately. I'm going to give you four examples from Scripture real quick. It may come to us immediately. It's not normative that it, justice comes to us immediately. Or it may come to us at the end of a long, healthy, prosperous, pseudo-Christian life. So these last few minutes, a couple examples. I, I'll send you my notes if you want them. I'm not going to give you all the texts. Uh, but some of you will be familiar with Nadab and Abihu, Leviticus chapter 10. Anybody familiar? They were, they were priests. They were uh, the sons of Aaron. They knew the job, simple job. You do these three things. This is what you do. They couldn't seem to be bothered. They just didn't seem to care. Like a whole lot of folks, right, in the modern church, I'll just like do Christianity when it's convenient and when it doesn't put me out. Beloved, the superficial attitude that pervades in these last days is just stunning. It's just stunning. But they couldn't, you know, they couldn't get their act together. 
They disregarded the Word of God. I want you to see the consequences of disregarding the Word of God. Do you remember what happened? The fire came out from uh, the, uh, the throne and consumed them. Do you remember? Fire came out and consumed them. Nadab and Abihu. You remember what Aaron said? Nothing. Put his hand over his mouth. He knew it was right. He knew these boys were indifferent. Don't. I'm just going to say it to you. I'm saying this lovingly. This may kill the church. But this sermon may kill the church. Don't come here and be indifferent. Okay? Don't come here and be indifferent. I lovingly say this to each one of you. Do not come here and be indifferent. It is, is the most dangerous error that I believe is made in the modern church. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord, it said, and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And God said, but those who come near me, this is why I preach the way I preach. Okay, you know, if you want a guy that's going to pet you and stroke you and make you happy and feel good about yourself and promise you prosperity, don't come here. I preach because one day I'll stand before God. Those who come before me, I will be treated as holy, God says. And then he says, before all the people, I will be honored. So I'm standing before God as a, effectively the same thing as an Old Testament priest in one sense. And you are all the people. And God means for me to handle his word with integrity. And God means for you to honor him. So we're in this text, right? We're in this text. Second, we see how holiness deals with defiance. You may remember the story. The guy's name was Korah. He was the grandson of Levi, and he decided to take Moses on. You remember the story? God said to Moses, tell the people to back away from the dwellings of Korah. You remember the story? This is not going to go well. And the Bible says this, the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up in their households and all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol and the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. Fire also came forth from the Lord and consumed 250 more men who were part of the rebellion. And then the, the camp starts to grumble about the wrath of God. Then what happens? Some of you know. God sent forth His wrath and 14,700 more died. What do we take away from this? God's serious about sin. God is serious. God is deadly serious. He's forever serious. He's infinitely serious. He's eternally serious. He's everlastingly serious. About sin. Thirdly, we see how holiness answers a flagrant and willful disobedience. <laughs> I've had people say to me, well, I'm, I'm going to disagree with God on that one. And it's like, it's like, what? What? I've had people say this to me when I, when I confront their sin. And they'll, they'll say, oh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to disagree with God on that one. And it's like, obviously, clueless. Obviously, clueless. How does God deal with flagrant disobedience? You guys remember the story, right, of Achan? The Jews came into the promised land. They took Jericho. And God said all the, all the precious... Uh, the silver, gold, and articles of bronze and iron are, are holy unto the Lord and are to go into his treasury. Well, Achan just decided to take some of it. You know, he said, well, God's got a lot of stuff. He won't miss this. Obviously, God, 
knows what's going on. And actually the text says the anger of the Lord burned. Some of you are going to squirm a little bit when I read you the text. So Joshua writes that all of Israel with him took Achan and all that he had stolen and his sons and his daughters and his oxen and his donkeys and his sheep and his tent and all that belonged to him. And they brought them down to the valley at Achor and Israel stoned them with stones and burned them with fire after they stoned them with stones. And I know, the, I know where your mind goes. The sons and the daughters? I know where your mind goes. <laughs> Was it right? Of course it was right. Yahweh did it. It was exactly right. Listen, I'll, I'll give you a forewarning as we get into these next few sermons. Whenever you sense yourself recoiling from the judgment of God, there are two things you have to always remember. <laughs> He's always right and you're always wrong. Enough said about that. Lastly, we see how holiness reacts to religious duplicity, right? Playing religion with God. Playing religion in the church. This is a New Testament example. You, you, you already know where I'm going, don't you? Ananias and Sapphira? They agreed to sell a, a piece of land and bring all the proceeds into the church. Well, they lied about the proceeds. They lied. God took them both out. On the spot, they carried him out feet first. You say, well, Jim, God's not like that anymore. God's is exactly like that. Now, I may not carry you out feet first, but he knows if you're, you know, religiously duplicitous. He knows if the whole thing's a charade. He knows it and he hates it. And what happened to Ananias and Sapphira? in the sense that they ultimately died for their sin, will happen to all of us. And it will certainly happen to those who are playing a religious game with God. It was a breathtaking exhibition of incited holiness. Yahweh hates spiritual pretense and religious deception. So are you shocked? If you're biblically literate, you're not shocked. You know that these accounts are in the Bible. You know what you should be shocked about? Same thing I'm shocked about. I'm still walking around. I'm shocked. I told Karen today, man, my first 28 years, it was just awful. I was converted at 28. It was awful. And I've still, as you are, if you're honest, there's still sin issues I have to deal with. But the wages of sin, someone tell me, the wages of sin is a day at the beach. The wages of sin is a raise. The wages of sin is a nice family. The wages of sin is a great retirement. No, the wages of sin is your death. It's what you deserved yesterday, the day before, and the day before that. If you're walking around, you're breathing, you're eating, this is all grace. Everything's grace. If you get a biblical worldview, you realize everything is grace. Everything is grace. Everything, everything is grace. There's not anything that's not grace. Okay? 
And you're a thankless person. Maybe you're not. But aren't we all guilty? Aren't we all guilty of being basically thankless for the billion things that are perfect in my life and I just want to complain to God about the three that aren't? We're all like this. Maybe you're too holy. But I had to fight this. I had to fight this in my life. Let me just quit like this, end like this. The words of the Apostle Paul. Romans 2, verses 4 through 6. I challenge you, as Paul says, do not think lightly of the riches of, the, of God's kindness and forbearance and patience. Do you not know that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to every man according to his deeds. It's what we saw in the text tonight. Although God made provision for Isaiah, right? Praise God. He's made provision. The question is... Have you availed yourself to the provision that God has made, right? Have you genuinely come to Christ? Have you genuinely repented of your sin? Have you, have you placed your faith in Christ? And are you doing what Christ always said? What did he always say to the people that came to him? He always said the same thing. And this is, this is the test, right? As James chapter 2 says, uh, faith without works is dead. This is always the test. Is it real? Are you following Christ? Are you following Christ? Are you submitting to the word of Christ out in the world? Are you being a witness? <laughs> this, is what, this is what born again Christianity looks like, beloved. So we're going to continue to look at God the next few weeks. It may get bumpy for some of us. Um, but I, hey, I'm, I'm committed to this. I'm going to love you enough. And if the church closes, it closes. Hey, life's too short, right? Life is too short. It's just too short to play a game about who Yahweh is. So we're going to talk a lot more about who he is and how he does business in the world. And um, some of us may not like it. I hope that we all will receive it humbly. Let's pray together.